G'day, and welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's agriculture industry. Key areas of focus are industry analysis with key stakeholders, policy makers, engagement with farmers and producers, and working to close the rural-urban divide. Farmers work hard. They love the land and are a critical part of New Zealand's fabric. There are many things for farmers to think about, whether it be drought, market conditions and farm gate returns, and increased pressure from the public or policy makers. Working with Postquake Farming, we are taking a look at what farmers are doing to improve their businesses, their biodiversity, their land use and their well-being. Before we get into this week's episode, let's take a look at the beef and lamb market. Prices for New Zealand source manufacturing beef remain positive with the current favourable exchange rate. Prices are nearly 10% above the five-year average in New Zealand dollar terms. Some of this positivity has come from a big fall in high-fat content manufacturing beef prices in the US with this fattier product usually mixed in with the leaner meat New Zealand supplies to create a viable burger patty. Prime markets are seeing headwinds in Asia with little improvement on the horizon or until China exits their summer, a period where beef consumption is seasonally lower. In terms of store cattle, the market remains positive and the good grass growth has resulted in farmers wanting to get into the market early before prices increase further in early spring. With the market being in winter mode currently, lower volumes are traded at this time of year in general. Spring in livestock trading terms is only two to three weeks away. North Island steer is currently processing at around $5.45 per kilogram and $4.85 per kilogram in the south. A 400 kilogram live weight steer is trading in the paddock at around $2.95 per kilogram in the north and $2.55 per kilogram in the south respectively. Processed lamb prices have stabilised over the last couple of weeks with a general soft export market due to COVID-19 and in particular a soft service market currently this limits the potential of increased farm gate returns. The store lamb market in the North Island has seen demand for ewe lambs lift. The South Island remains steady on store lambs, but has seen some solid prices paid in the sale yards. North Island lambs are currently processing at around $7.20 per kilogram, and South Island lambs are processing at $6.95 per kilogram. In the paddock, a North Island ewe lamb at 30 kilograms is fetching around $3.45 per kilogram, slightly up on last month, and $3.20 per kilogram in the south, respectively. This week on Factum Agri, I am continuing to look at diversification and land use change. I am talking with farmers Lockie Taylor and John Hickman. Both farm in the ward area in southern Marlborough. Both properties are intergenerational and have made significant changes in their land use. Firstly, Let's check in with John. Hello, John. Thank you for talking with me today. Angus, how are you going? Good. Please tell me a bit about your farming business, where you are located and what you farm. Yeah, so um, my brother and I, Paul, Paul and I are in um, farming partnership. Um, we live at, uh, on Taimati Farm in Ward in southern Marlborough. Our family's been on the land since, uh, since around 1905. And on this particular block of land since 1915. Back in the 1950s, my grandfather and his brother, my grand uncle, started up the Taimati Angus Stud, which um, my father took took over from them. And now Paul is uh, his, he's running the the Taimati Angus Stud as of now. And 
I mean, my, I myself, I came back to the farm in 2004 and set up a 11 hectare vineyard. And we've uh, slowly expanded that to uh, now around about 85 hectares now. Yeah, so um, the farm's uh, 700 hectares, sheep and beef, although we're concentrating a lot more now towards the Angus side of it. We've got a good mix of grapes. We used to do a bit of lucerne cropping and the odd forage crop. Good wee little spot on, on right on the main road, so it's, we're pretty visible. John, what is your annual rainfall where you are, and have you noticed any change in either total volume received or changes in when rain falls over the course of the year? Um, it's a tricky one. I mean, it's so it has gone up and down a lot over the years. I mean, our average rainfall traditionally has been about 550 to 600 millimetres a year, but the last uh, three or four years we're probably up around. Yeah, we are up around about. Uh, 750, 800 millimetres, just the way the weather pattern's been the last few years, um, with the exception of the summer. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tricky one. It, it, yeah, I mean, looking back, there's records locally back um, over 100 years, and it's certainly cyclical. Uh, I look back to the early 2000s, it was, it was a reasonably dry period, but since then we've had a reasonably moist period, and we get rain uh, spread all throughout the year. And even this year, we were lucky right up till December, we got two inches of rain, which, which carried us through. But since that time, we had nothing right up till sort of uh, late May, which was a little bit late <laughs> going into the winter. But um, yeah, it's, it's such a variable thing. Yeah, a little bit more extreme, I think. Mm. Um, so we go through a dry period and then you have a, a heavy wet period. You mentioned diversification into grapes. Were you forced into that move or was that part of a, a broader plan around diversification and your risk profile? Well, I guess um, from a farming perspective, my, my brother was on farm, my brother and his wife, and um, they were slowly taking over from, from dad. Um, for me to come back to the farm, I had to bring something new. And the viticulture industry was very strong at the time, it was very bullish. And the uh, financial side of it stacked up and we had dams that were built mid-70s and we thought, right, we can utilise a little bit of water, get sort of this 10 or 11 hectares going. And so we did that um, and that sort of started the ball rolling and, and unfortunately we went through tough, tough times, the industry, but, uh, but it's still proving to be um, a good industry, good, stable, strong industry. So we've carried on. Naturally, we're seeing grapes emerging in ward. What other land use changes are you seeing? And what other horticultural options have potential in the area? Oh, look, um, ward itself has got a lot of potential. I mean, southern Marlborough, between the, our sunshine hours and the heat and uh, the cool, cool winters, there's a potential for all sorts of uh, horticultural crops. I mean, obviously, grapes is the proven crop and uh, more and more is pushing in and coming down this way. We looked at, we grew some olives in a trial. We've done onions in a trial. We've done a few things just looking at different different options. We did underground drip line um, as a trial in lucerne stands, trying to boost uh, seed production. But at the end of the day, you know, when it all stacks up you, on paper, the uh, grape industry was was the one that sort of outshone and it's such a stable and strong industry that you, you couldn't really look past it but but not to say I mean there's this I mean apples used to be grown here but 
Uh, there used to be, you know, 100 years ago, there was, you know, small dairy farms and those sort of things. Um, not that we're an unusual block for a, would be for a dairy farm these days, but hmm. um, but I mean, in terms of, yeah, so you've got apples. I know there's uh, the local producers of garlic and onions, uh, you know, they're, they're looking out this way. Um, so there is options if, if people want to look at those. And what irrigation is available currently? And is there scope for irrigation to increase in the region? Yeah, so the uh, irrigation, there's uh, two rivers. Uh, essentially, there's the Flaxbourne River, which uh, runs to the north of Ward, and that supplies all um, domestic and stock supply. And there's some some um, water take consents for irrigation out of that. Uh, it's very limited. Um, but Ward itself, um, I used to be on the um, irrigation scheme committee. Uh, we identified approximately 2,000 hectares within the Flaxbourne area that, that is able to be irrigated. At, at present, there's a, the irrigation st- scheme is still um, up and running. They're looking at applying for a consent out of the Ewa River or Weimar, which is um, to the south of Ward, which has um, quite an abundant supply. It's just, a, it's just a wee way away, so it was always tricky. But they've currently got 1,200 hectares signed up, and that's looking um, very positive. So there is, uh, there is scope to move within this area that, you know, things are going to change once the scheme comes through. Is frost an issue for you and Ward? Naturally, this would have an impact on what can be grown. Uh, yes, um, but it's all manageable. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I've, I've got a, a small vineyard block on the other end of the farm that's uh, probably in one of the, in the coldest spot in the district. And, I mean, we manage that and, and it's a very successful block. Um, so if we can do that, then then there's no issue for, for others. I mean, the ward area or the Flaxbourne area is actually um, quite dynamic in terms of its land. Uh, it's quite fractured. It's not like great big swathes of um, flat land. It's, it, there's pockets all over the show, and each one is quite unique. But, um, yeah, I mean, frost is an issue, but it, as I say, I mean, we probably, go, we probably have maybe three, maybe four frost events in the spring. And you'd be unlucky to get one in the autumn. We've had the odd one, but it's never been an issue. What is your view on current discussion around the ETS and corporate carbon farming? Oh, the ETS worries me a little bit. I, I find it's a bit strange that um, a big polluter can can essentially carry on polluting and just buy buy land and convert it to trees. It's sort of there's no incentive to change what they're doing. So I find that a little bit rich. Um, and then you've got the flow on issues um, for New Zealand, traditional New Zealand farming. I mean, I can understand carbon farming in, in, on very marginal land, but I mean, there's, there's properties like just to the south of us here. They've just been bought um, a sheep and beef farm, beautiful farm that's about to be converted to trees. And it seems like such a waste. You know, New Zealand's such an efficient producer of food um, we should be leaving the the, uh, the carbon farming maybe to other countries. Um, but then when you've got the price of carbon, uh, you know, once that heads north sort of 50 or more bucks, it's bucks per tonne of carbon, then, uh, you know, you're going to start, uh, there are going to be people start looking at uh, blocking up land and, and trees or pine trees, and then you've got a whole bunch of other issues. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a little bit worried about it. Do you think there's a disconnect between rural and urban communities? Uh, yeah, and I'm glad you used the word disconnect. Many people use the word divide. 
and with the rural-urban so-called divide, you know, that indicates that there's a barrier. And I don't think there's a barrier. So a disconnect is the right word. I think as urban urban populations have grown, as media, as um, regulations, as as we've sort of um, progressed, yeah, the, the, the rural folk, or yeah, it has become disconnected from everyday life, and it, it's a little bit of a worry. Um, I myself, I got pretty brassed off watching some of the climate protests uh, a few months ago, but when I sat back and looked at it, I, I realised, you, you know, you've got these climate protesters that are protesting for the government and councils to to step up and do stuff, and all. and I sort of thought, well, actually, it's up to it's up to the individuals, it's up to us all to do something. But when I stepped back and looked at it, I thought, well, actually, these, uh, these urban, urban folk, they probably don't have, they don't have the land that they can do something with. They don't have the, the real ability, possibly not even the financial ability to do what we can. You know, we've got land, we can buy plants, but as a farmer, we struggle with the time to get things planted. So actually, I've just been looking at trying to set something up where we create a link um, between farms that have land and the plants to plant and urban folk that are concerned, that have a bit of time that they can spend maybe on a weekend or on, on a day on a weekend and come out to a farm and plant some plants. And the whole idea of that is hopefully to break up this this disconnect, get, get them back on the land, see what we're doing on farms because there's a huge, a lot of positivity going on um, in farming these days, but I don't think a lot of it is, is really seen. So break up that connection, get more land planted, and it benefits the farmer in terms of time. And yeah, get, gets those urban folk back on the land seeing what we're doing, hopefully. That's a great idea, John, and I wish you all the best with that. Thanks, Angus. Thank you very much for your time and thoughts today. No worries. Thank you. Let's now check in with Lockie Taylor. Hello, Lockie. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, no worries, Angus. Uh, Pleased to be on the show. Please, can you tell me a bit about your property, where it is located, and what you produce? Yes, yeah, so we, uh, together with my partner, Ellie Avery, we um, farm about 50k south of Blenheim, and we've got uh, two properties here, and it uh, makes up a little bit over a 1,000 hectares. Um, so traditionally, I suppose, um, it's a family farm. Um, and my grandfather bought the place about 100 years ago, but over 100 years. And so this year when he came, he was uh, sheep and beef. And I was actually reading one of his diaries the other day, and I, he um, rabbit skinning was a, was a big thing back in the day as well, made up a big part of his income. But uh, the rabbits are long gone now. So we, um, we're still sheep and beef, but we've also got 40 hectares of viticulture producing Sauvignon Blanc for two or three different wineries around Marlborough. Did you explore other land use options before planting grapes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, um, I suppose, in about the late nineties, I um, we were sort of thinking about grapes, and, and the setup costs of um, grapes is, is quite high. Um, and so I sort of looked at alternatives. Olives was one, um, and I was lucky enough to to end up in a in a vineyard, an olive grove, in Italy, about an hour north of Rome, and uh, spent a bit of time there, sort of. Sort of trying to get to grips with with what went on with with olives, um, and came away thinking perhaps it wasn't quite for us. But um, as the years went by, and Ellie and I started talking about grapes again, and so yeah, we made the decision in 2006 
to, to plant our first vineyard and it's uh, been onwards and upwards ever since. Does the vineyard operation work well with the livestock business and how has planting grapes changed the way you farm the balance of the land? I suppose the, the vineyard has increased profitability and so that has changed the way we farm the balance of the land. It means that we can put more money into the productive parts of the land and perhaps retire some of that more marginal country. And so, yeah, there's quite a few synergies between the vineyard operation and the livestock operation. Um, one being, uh, you know, the tractors and so forth that we have in the vineyard, we can also use on the, on the, on the farm. Um, our um, you know accounting costs and things like that sort of works well together if you know what I mean. Um, also, we, we still graze the vineyard. Like in, in January, we uh, we do a thing called leaf plucking, which um, removes a bit of the leaf to let air get into the vineyard and keep disease away and and so forth. And so we put uh, hoggets in January into the vineyard, and they they do a fair amount of leaf plucking for us, which um, has a bit of a win-win effect because obviously we're getting some some grazing we wouldn't. Uh, have had ordinarily um, and then once uh, harvest is done in sort of mid-April um, we've got the whole vineyard area uh, available for winter grazing so um, and so the vineyard stays dormant for probably approximately six months so it's, it's quite a um, it still plays quite a part in, in our livestock operation. Where do you currently get water for your grapes from and what does the future look like in terms of water usage? Um, so we, we've got a, uh, a river that runs through the property um, and so we mostly our water comes from storage ponds. So we've got uh, two or three storage ponds built and we pump the water in when the river's flooding and then we, um, we use it obviously during the summer. Um, it, that comes at quite a cost. It's, um, the cost does, I think from memory, around about $15,000 a hectare of planted vineyard to to build the storage facilities for the water. And then it costs um, probably uh, around about $10,000 a hectare to set up your um, irrigation itself. So we use the water uh, as efficiently as we possibly can. And we, since planting the vineyard, we, I think we've got better and better at using that water more wisely. Um, Technology is also a bit more advanced these days. Um, so we can measure, you know, the moisture in the ground um, rather than just perhaps dropping a spade in the ground and digging up a bit of dirt to see how dry it was. We now can look online and see exactly uh, what the moisture content is. And so hopefully hopefully that technology continues to evolve and, and we can use that water better and better. As, it, as I said, it costs a lot of money to, to store it. But you don't have any problems around volume of water? Um, volume of water. Um, Meaning you have plenty of it? Um, yeah, for, uh, this year we probably used um, most of what we had. Um, we didn't have a lot left. It was a particularly dry summer from, I think, uh, we had our last rain just uh, on about Christmas Day or just before Christmas Day. Mm. Um, and there, between there and harvest, I think we only had about 30 mils of rain. So, so this year was particularly dry and we, we used it all. Obtaining water, it's, um, it's, it's not an easy process to, to get a resource consent to take water. It's, uh, I could probably go on for several hours about that particular subject, but um, I won't bore you with. Do you have a view on the emissions trading scheme and properties being purchased to farm carbon? 
Um, yeah, I, I suppose I, I do. I do. Yes. Um, first of all, I, I think it's obviously each landowner's prerogative to, to sell to whoever he wants to sell. Um, and so I, I don't blame these people that are selling their properties for carbon farming. But they've got to uh, look after themselves. Um, I don't know that um, carbon farming is necessarily in the best interest of the, of the country, however. And I think it's um, it's politically motivated, and often things that are politically motivated aren't necessarily um, in everyone's best interest. But uh, yeah, so that's my view on it. Do you think there's a disconnect between rural and urban populations? I think there was a small disconnect. Um, unfortunately, I think it's become a a little bit of a political kind of football and perhaps politicians have got hold of that disconnect and um, used it to the advantage and and farmers have probably ended up being a bit of a political whipping boy and we, we're because we're a minority and, and we've got um, uh, very little voting power we've we've probably ended up getting the blame for for a lot of things that we're not necessarily responsible for and that uh, creating that urban-rural divide has um, helped that political narrative. I, th I think an example of that is just recently we've had um, you know, act climate activists um, protesting outside of a fertiliser store, um, whereas you would think maybe they'd be better off protesting outside an airport. Mm. The balance of sheep and beef and viticulture is clearly a good one, and it's working well for your business. Have you got confidence in New Zealand's primary industries into the future? Um, well, I suppose uh, we, we've always adapted. You only have to look at you know, uh, Rogenomics in the, in the early mid-80s. I, I remember my parents going through through all, all that, and it was hard, and, and um, um, a lot of farmers fell by the wayside, and um, some made it through. Um, so I, I think um, farmers in general have, a, have an ability to, to ride out those rough times and, and re-evolve themselves. And, um, but yeah, I, I think that we all need to eat as long as, um, as all the politicians remain sensible. I, I think there's a, there's a good future for them. Thank you very much for your time today, Lockie. No worries at all. Thank you to my guests today, Lockie Taylor and John Hickman. Both farmers have seized opportunities to diversify and have made significant changes to their land use. In order for John to move home, he needed to bring new ideas and a fresh approach that would be economically viable for another family on the family farm. Many horticulture options were considered by both, but at the time, the opportunity to plant grapes and join the Marlborough Appalachian looked to stack the best on paper. Earlier in the year, Brent Clothier Principal scientist at Plant and Food Research joined me on the show and discussed research that he carried out in the Ward region, which looked at the potential of horticulture in that area. The area is indeed well suited to various horticulture options. An obvious one, and one that is well documented and appearing to be thriving, is grapes. Frost can be an issue, but its risk can be mitigated through frost control. Other horticulture options as part of the study are as follows. Apples and pears were considered to be well suited to the area, particularly mid-season varieties such as Royal Gala. However, there is a slight risk of frost before harvest on exceptionally cold years. This can be mitigated, however. 
While it appears possible to grow kiwi fruit near the coast, it is likely to be too cool on average for the economic viability of growing kiwi fruit. Summers would appear to be constantly too cool for blueberries without significant mitigation measures. Maximum temperatures during the spring are sufficient for avocados, but there is a risk of cold snaps and frost damage due to cold winter and spring nights. With that being said, I know of avocados that are successfully grown slightly south of Ward in Kikarangu, right on the coast. Hazelnuts and walnuts were considered, but the winters are only cold enough for varieties with low to medium chilling requirements and cultivar selection would be important. Hemp and CBD cannabis are likely feasible. However, it is likely too windy for hops unless significant wind mitigation is implemented. Regulatory requirements are changing around CBD cannabis and there are advanced plans in the works for CBD cannabis to be planted south of Ward once regulatory requirements are met. There is certainly potential for horticulture in the Ward region and I like the approach that some farmers are taking by maintaining their traditional livestock farming systems that are tried and proven and allocating parts of their properties to other land use types. The world's demand for food is only increasing and I see the long-term demand for New Zealand's food growing exponentially in the coming years as the developed world looks for sustainable, grass-fed and low-intensity farmed food products. And we are in the driving seat to deliver this. Thank you for listening and catch you next time on Factor Magri.